If you enjoy our podcast, including the developer news, the Cherry Tech Cast, business of development, uh, we have something we'd like you to do for us. Uh, we've been trying to get uh, the word out about these podcasts for the last couple of years, and we found the perfect place to do so. It turns out that Lifehacker has a nice uh, site, uh, a little page that they put up called the Best Informative Brain Boosting Podcast Worth Subscribing To. And so it's not really a contest, but it's like a good kind of list system. Uh, so um, there's a Lifehacker podcast, which is driving this. And uh, you can go and, and you can submit uh, your podcast to this thing. Uh, and so what I did was I, I put together a simple link on emergingtech.charitysolutions.com slash shout out, all one word. We'll redirect you to this Lifehacker page. And so uh, what they do is they have in here, um, let's see. We, it says, uh, aside from the Lifehacker podcast, which we all hope you love and already subscribe to, there are more podcasts out there to listen to than there are hours in the day. Whether you're interested in movies or pop culture, tech news and commentary, food, drinks and how-tos, etc., uh, things that are worth time to listen to. You just have to submit an image of the podcast or a title card, which you can get from subscribing to us on iTunes or an RSS feed. Uh, put a comment in there as well and say why did you love the podcast. And so this is in the comment stream of this particular post. So please uh, give us a shout out. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. So, um, so Joel, how are you doing this week, man? Doing pretty good. Did some uh, did some conferences. Did a conference on Friday. Wharton. Uh, Biz- oh, how was the Wharton Business Conference? It was cool. It was well, it was Biz Tech. So it's like the things right. I had, like wearable computing. There were a bunch of people running around with Google Glass. That was pretty cool. Did you want to knock the glass off their faces? No, I wanted to actually run over and let them and have them let me try it out. They were letting people try it and like run around the room. But what'd you think? Well, I didn't try it partially okay. because you have to take off your glasses to put on those glasses. Oh, right. But yeah, did that and then was actually at Philly.net Code Camp on Saturday. That was really good. They had 50 sessions, a lot of developers, all kinds of stuff. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, you know Microsoft focus, but there was a lot of uh, JavaScript focused node people are doing a lot of node stuff. It was really good. Very cool. Yeah, that was at uh, Penn State Abington, beautiful campus. All right, so we have a number of things. Uh, oh yeah, so <laughs> what are we doing? Right, Cherry Developer News, episode number sixty nine, almost seventy for Monday, November twenty fifth, twenty thirteen. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. And as Sue John had told me, uh, he said they even let Code Monkeys take a break. Hey, man, he, the hardest, hardest working man in show business has to take a little time off. He sh- yeah, he really should. He's a very hardworking man. Um, so we have a number of interesting articles this week, and glad everyone joins us. Um, yes, yeah, so if you want to comment on anything you hear, use the Twitter handle at TechCast or email techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. Uh, so we'll start off here. Um, there's a number of things going on in the Springiverse, um, so to speak. Uh, spring.io is the new website for all things spring. And uh, that's when Pivotal bought them and they kind of merged into this uh, company that's a subsidiary of both uh, a bunch of company properties from VMware as well as from, um, uh, what's the other one uh, that owns VMware partially? Now I don't remember the name of the name. Um, anyway, so, so that's terrible. Pivotal? No, no, the big company, EMC. That was oh, it. right, right. So EMC and, so basically EMC and VMware had a baby and it's called... No, it's called uh, it's called Pivotal. Uh, Pivotal is the company that they created that is a subsidiary. It's actually a separate company that they, they built for uh, big data and data science. And Spring falls into that category along with also the server products that they were viewing with things like TC Server and such. And so in part of this, they created this website for Spring to really kind of highlight it as an open source initiative all on its own called Spring.io. 
And basically all the properties that were spring properties ended up there. And, you know, everything's the same from a development perspective. It's still GitHub based and all that. Uh, so the reason I'm mentioning that is because that's where this blog entry is that was just announced uh, actually a couple of weeks ago uh, on 11.12. Uh, the the um, title of this is by John Brisbane. It's, it can't just be big data. It has to be fast data. Reactor 1.0 goes GA. Now, I know that there's uh, a bunch of uh, discussions around super high speed processing and trying to, as we talked about before, uh, limit thread code. So, you know, people do things like the actor model and they try to isolate things. There's this thing uh, out there called the LMAX Disruptor, uh, which is a ring buffer library. It kind of uh, breaks up jobs in little tiny ring buffer slots and tries to keep uh, away from doing, I guess, uh, traditional threading. So this API is a reactive uh, application, so event-driven application that can handle thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of requests per second. Um, crazy, you know, numbers of requests. And it's based on LMAX Disruptor. Um, it also uses SLF4J for logging. Um, it certainly is part of the Spring I.O. platform. Uh, they have a processor abstraction, um, which I guess you interact with different processes through the processor. They're using a library called Java Chronicle uh, for doing message passing. Uh, and uh, they're using, uh, in Groovy, they're using at compile static. So if you want to write this code in a DSL in Groovy, you can have it statically compiled. And it's based on Netty 4.0. So very fast. It's got some spring support built into it. And uh, they're saying on a developer laptop, uh, the fastest configuration, they can have a standard ring buffer backed reactor. They can publish over to 10 to 15 million events per second. Now, I'm sure the event's like, hello, mom. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, once you go to a database, you're done, you know. Um, but uh, it's crazy. Um, it says the processor abstraction can pump over 100 million events per second into your application. Now, I don't write software that needs this level of performance at all. Um, and, and I'm sure a very small subset does. Uh, but it's something to look at. I know there's a bunch of different libraries out there. Um, you know, they're certainly going with LMAX directly. Um, and, and there are other ones like there's, uh, RX Java from Netflix. I think we talked about that on the show a while back. Uh, maybe we didn't, um, JDK eight has a streaming abstraction there's a bunch of other things as well, but reactor now kind of is one of the things in that slot. They also are supporting something called meltdown. Uh, it's some sort of uh, library that makes it easier to write, uh, code, um, that deals with this reactive model. Is that closure based? I believe meltdown. I'm not 100% sure. Closure work, yeah, I guess so. Closure works as a library meltdown based on Reactor. Um, yep, that will be it. In fact, if you click on the link on that, it says meltdown, a closure interface to Reactor. <laughs> so I guess if you want to do closure code against it, you could do that too. And several people with Chariot are jumping up for joy. Um, <laughs> but um, then they show some examples. And of course, when they get to the groovy examples, they're really nice and cool and easy to work with. Um, so take a look at it, see if it's anything that, that's of interest and uh, see if it kind of fits in your world for you know, large scale event driven processing, reactive processing. Um, and again, it isn't based on spring, but it will integrate with spring. So it's, it's part of their suite, but it is not requiring spring to run. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Certainly seems like it's kind of getting into like Akka's wheelhouse and things like that, but, or I guess just recognizing that systems are going to start to be built differently and, you know, they're going to try to adopt that. Yep. Yep. I guess while we're at it, we might as well talk about Groovy 2.2. Um, so uh, Guillaume, Guillaume Laforge um, had posted on his blog article on the 18th 
that uh, Groovy 2.2 is released. And so I haven't been keeping up with Groovy that much lately. I mean, I like the language, but it was pretty easy to work with. And I just said, okay, well, I use it, you know, as my utility language for things I'm working on. Um, but in 2.2, they have, I guess, uh, let's see, um, if you want to use uh, log4j2, they have an at log annotation to, to log to that. Um, there is a delegates to annotation to delegate processing, I guess. Um, there's a pre-compiled type checking extensions uh, process built in. So I guess if you're looking to get good bytecode uh, performance out of it. Um, they've in integrated something called Bintray's JCenter repository. I'm not familiar with that at all, but that must be some new repository system. Uh, but they're able to use Bintray's JCenter, which is interesting because you would think that everyone wants to go to the Maven Central repository. I wonder what JCenter is. Have you ever heard yeah. of that? I have not. not familiar with that myself. Forget about, ooh, hey, let's take a side to, uh, no, go to bintray.com. Uh, it's interesting, bintray.com, when you hit that, uh, it says forget about the Maven Central Repository. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Them's fighting words. That's <laughs> painful. Um, yeah, I wonder why. It's a social service for, oh, no, social service for developers to publish, download, store, promote, and share open source software packages. Um, interesting. Your binaries are yours. Uh, so it's, it's more of giving power back to you as opposed to having to go through a central, um, you know, approval process, I guess. Um, interesting. yeah, apparently, apparently there's enough in there that Groovy decided to be able to support it. They use it as a source. That's kind yeah. of interesting, isn't it? Okay. Hey, side notes were spidering all over the place today. OSGI manifests for the invoke dynamic jars. So I'm guessing at that point, if you're using OSGI, you could, dynamically invoke a call to something in a uh, OSGI-based library, load it up and call things to it. That could be pretty cool. Um, but it looks like a lot of, you know, smaller enhancements. I know that Groovy 2.0 and 2.1 were pretty big changes. But anyway, so it's out. Uh, it was out as of the 18th. And so if you're a Groovy developer, go check it out. Yeah, I like Groovy a lot. It's yeah. a nice little language. It really is. It gets things done very easily. Oh, I feel like all the first ones are mine. I will keep uh, dominating here for a couple <laughs> seconds. Here's another interesting one. Um, Mozilla Developer creates curriculum to onboard new contributors to Firefox. So, you know, the challenge is, you know, you have an open source community. You've got developers in it. What do you do to bring new developers on board? Well, most of the time you wait for them to find you. You wait for them to be smart enough to submit a patch. And if they're not, bludgeon them. No, <laughs> <laughs> that patch isn't good. Here's the actual fix. Push your fix. Uh, but let's say you aren't like that, um, and Mozilla is pretty uh, friendly to developers. Uh, and so Brian R. Bondi took it upon himself to widen the community circle. He looked at things like Code Academy, uh, massively online courses, uh, things like that, and he has one uh, called Code Firefox. He put together. Um, and it's not for money. It's just, you know, for uh, getting people going. So if you go to codefirefox.com in the videos, uh, the first two videos, which it looks like aren't available yet, looks like he's, he's uh, going to be publishing these, would be about what Mozilla is all about and marketing yourself as a developer. And then it looks like he does have some very specific videos that are already published. So getting ready for development, you know, setting up a Windows Firefox build or Linux Firefox build. Curiously, the OS X one isn't up yet. Uh, different types of Firefox channels and repos and so on. Then he gets into building, uh, how to work on a bug, uh, you know, prepping to work on your bug, and then actually working on a bug, landing a patch, and then looking at things like queues and things like that. So pretty cool. I mean, it's nice to see someone in an open source project spend the time 
to uh, start building some of these tutorials. Yeah, it was very comprehensive. There's a lot of stuff on there. I think if, if this was done for more projects, I mean, of course, it, it, that's a large project, I guess, with a pretty good funding and such. Um, you know, it, it, it would be nice to see this in some other open source projects out there because uh, I know it's really kind of like everyone is different and everyone has its own little in crowd and way of getting in. And for good reason, you don't want people putting fixes into your uh, framework that don't really get your motives and your way of working. Uh, but that's what he's trying to do. So that is cool. Uh, do you want to do one? Let me get one in from you. Sure. Uh, let's go to some uh, Docker stuff. So Mesos and Docker okay. was something that I was speaking with uh, Brian McAllister, who is um, – okay, man. Hey, we know <laughs> my, him. My link just went away. There <laughs> <it> came back. <laughs> the old disappearing link. That's the, the downfall to uh, – Boo. Yeah. Editing at the same oh, time. Oh, you know, because I was copying and pasting it. I'm right, sorry. Right. That is a problem. <laughs> like, and it's right. I don't know where it is. So, um, hey, Mo. Yeah. Mesos is an open source project basically that helps you manage server clusters. So, it's kind of this idea that you would have uh, it's a cool idea, but you, you would basically have this giant grid of servers, and then Mesos would help you run whatever you wanted. So, if you wanted to run a web server, you would just give it to Mesos, and it would pick the actual physical box to run it on. So wow. you, could, you could just kind of you know, add, and, add hardware, and then the, this Mesos would figure out where to put it, where, where to put your application and to run the different pieces of it. So it's a cool idea. It's like a, like a clustering kind of thing, like a smart grid that runs your stuff. And so that, that I guess, has been around for a while. But um, the interesting part is that now they have developed, and actually in this blog article on TechCrunch they're looking at, Mm-hmm. They they mentioned that it's Google runs a very similar system called Borg, which was developed a long time ago before Mesos. So it's kind of like a data center management sort of thing, an abstraction layer almost. Wow. Well, well, this uh, Mesosphere, the company behind Meso, is an early stage startup. Again, according to this article, right. uh, founded by an ex Twitter uh, engineer. What isn't founded by an ex Twitter engineer? Actually? I don't know. Twitter. And, <laughs> <laughs> no I'm kidding. And there, there's, um, you know, developing Mesos. Wait, wait, wait. They, Facebook. Go ahead. Right, right. They're they're putting in um, basically support for Docker. So Docker is this lightweight container that runs your application. You can put your application in a Docker container, and then when you deploy it, it has some isolation file system isolation. The processes don't collide. So, you know, that's nice if you have. Um, you want to make sure that two applications don't basically step on each other when you deploy them. So you can put them in this nice Docker container. Well, Docker and Mesos sound like, you know, they kind of have some fit. Mesos will manage like this great grid of hardware for you. And then Docker kind of encapsulates your application. But, you know, how do you, but, and now the uh, Mesosphere has added support to run Docker on, you know, on their grid. So that's kind of an interesting combination. Um, basically looking at a lot of things that have to do with Docker for Hadal. Docker is really the new hotness. So if you, you know, everybody's kind of talking about Docker and using it. So that's one angle. And while I was looking at that angle, which was, you know, cool, you could run this open source grid and, and push your Docker applications out to that, um, get from Cheap Rock, who is the, uh, Justin Rieger, the lead developer at Hadel, he was telling me about CoreOS, which is related and also really awesome. So CoreOS, probably one of the cooler things I've found in a long time. And Mesos is very cool. But CoreOS is Linux for massive server deployments. Mm. So basically, it's a Linux distribution that was stripped down to have just the absolute bare minimum that you need to run a Docker image, which is awesome. So it's basically 
Um, there's a lot of things that it's basically the Linux kernel and a few other things. And what this means is it's very performant because you're not running a bunch of other crap that you don't need. Right. And it's built for running these containers. So, um, and it also has some things built in that make it more convenient to run clusters. So it is really kind of like competitive to Mesos, I think, but it's your actual operating system and it's clustered and they have this interesting um, thing that they wrote. So when you have any kind of clustering, you need something to kind of, some kind of shared configuration to keep track of the cluster, who's the, you know, who's in charge and, and these sorts of things. And so Zookeeper is a really popular Apache framework for that. Yeah, right. Or, or you know, server that you can run. So you can run a bunch of nodes in Zookeeper. Mm-hmm. You know, great name by the way. You know, Zookeeper know, yeah. keep, keeps your zoo running, right? <laughs> well, the the uh, CoreOS people wrote their own kind of uh, shared configuration and cl- um, you know server, and they called it uh, etcd. So etcd. So you know, kind of related to CoreOS, which is really pretty awesome, is this etcd which can um, you can run independently to do exactly kind of what Zookeeper does. And um, it's just really a neat combination. So that's definitely something to, to check out because, you know, you don't need like a package manager when you're talking about Docker and running it on like CoreOS. You know, you, your build system builds your um, Docker VM, basically, your lightweight container. It puts your application in it. And then you ship it out to you know to this to your running production instances that are running a super lightweight version of Linux, and you know and it has this kind of uh, etcd stuff built in, so you already have your built-in service discovery and shared configuration. It, I think what it basically does is it it's a really nice, um, simple system if you want to deploy Docker basically, and it runs on Vagrant, it runs on Amazon Web Services, yeah, it runs on that. right, it runs on bare metal VMware. So, so, yeah, so definitely going to be experimenting. Open stacks. Yeah, this this is wow. built basically for Docker. I think uh, at least that's a very core use case, and um, very very interesting because running massive server deployments is not simple. Like nobody would actually call that easy, um, but this is you know custom built basically to solve that exact problem, and um, really interesting. You know, it's kind of like you know if you wanted to be the next Amazon. You know, or you know, something along those lines. You have a large company. You want to just treat your devices as compute machines, and you know, have uh, platforms and images de- designed. You can just kind of keep expanding and keep loading out. Um, and you want to do it on whatever operating system you want. CoreOS kind of protects that investment, I suppose, because you could start with VMware, vSphere, or something like that, and then move to Amazon Web Services for things you want to ship outside or something like that. Yeah, and having the service discovery built in. Yeah. Uh, you know, that also is a really nice feature. That's so it doesn't great. have like a lot of unnecessary stuff, but it has that built in. Um, yeah, it just seems, um, you know, that helps you with distributing your your system and failover and all those things, and that's kind of built in. So so really cool. It's almost like this is an operating system that's built just for Docker, just for, you know, massive server deployments. And um, and we're definitely looking at this, you know, for Hadle, for a real, I think it's like a for real thing. It's not just a... Yeah, sort of theoretical. So. Very, very cool. Very interesting. Um, I'm going to throw this out here, although I'm not quite 100% sold on it yet uh, as a, in terms of concept, but uh, uh, have you heard about web components? Whenever I hear something like a web and a component <laughs> together. <laughs> like, uh, web yeah. methods. Have you heard about web methods? Have you yeah. heard about, you know, yeah, whatever. Um, however, I, I'm, I'm open to this. So Mark Doglish 
uh, D-A-L-G-L-E-I-S-H. I actually had a Dalglish uh, teacher at uh, Spring Garden when I went to school, but he is a different one because he's from Melbourne, Australia, and this guy was from, I think, Philly. Um, but anyway, so what he's talking about actually is building components, and it's very similar to what you see in AngularJS, where you define a tag, and then you define the behavior for the tag in JavaScript. Um, you can do that. Uh, in fact, I didn't realize this, but you can actually in, um, I guess this is how Angular does it, is you can, you can mount a tag and say this new element, you do a, a create element essentially. Uh, where is it on here? I'm not sure if I'm going to get this right. Document.register. So if you create your own um, element, your own tag, your own whatever, um, you can do document.register and regis register a tag, and then you can attach behavior to the tag. And so this do this uh, particular paper, and I want to spend some time on it and read through it, uh, by Mark Dogleash, uh, is going all the way through, you know, here are our components today. You basically have you know, divs with, with, with IDs on them or tags or some sort of label, and you pluck them out by grabbing the inner HTML, you find the actual tag you want, and then you do JavaScript against it. But instead, with web components, you basically replace it with semantically marked up tags that you register in the browser, and then you have your code respond to those tags. Uh, and so you truly are building components in the web. So uh, interesting. Uh, now the thing is, uh, somewhere in here he says, uh, before you begin, you need to make sure your browser has the relevant features enabled. If you use Chrome, you head to Chrome flags and enable experimental web platform features. So right there, um, that tells you that you're dealing bleeding edge, right? Because it, we're at the point where Chrome doesn't even support this stuff yet yep. um, out of the box. But he also says that if you don't have these features enabled, you can use Google's Polymer or Mozilla's X tag, and then you can do the same kind of stuff. So it could be that this is where the, the web is moving longer term. They realize they see things like Angular and other um, APIs that have their own special tags. Kind of an outcropping of the data tags and such, right? The attributes yep. you put on things. Um, that really you're now being able to build DSLs and HTML, which Angular can do for you uh, as one of, the, one of the languages that can do that, one of the platforms. Um, but uh, it seems like that this is stuff that's either in specification or it's experimental i have to do a little more research to see where they come from um, but they have things like html templates for example and html imports so all this stuff is coming along uh and we'll have to see where it goes so anyway mark dalglish d-a-l-g-l-e-i-s-h.com and the article is called web components why you're already an expert oh. interesting stuff it is uh, so we talked about CoreOS, etcd, front-end developer reading list. I dug into this. Um, so CodeWeavers.net uh, has a uh, recommended reading library for 2013 for uh, front-end developers. I'm not sure how old this uh, is in 2013, uh, but I took a look at the one, the Five Simple Steps Pocket Guide series, and I went and picked up the 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 collection. I did find in that first one that some of these were published in 2010, 2011, 2012. So they weren't <clears throat> super new. Uh, but there were things like, for example, in that collection I have, um, let me see here. You know, uh, th that was the, the ones from Simple Steps, 5simplesteps.com uh, is the one group. And they've got a bunch of little tiny collection books, pocket guides that you can get as ebooks for, you know, uh, 15 bucks or something like that each. Um, and they looked interesting, you know, so I picked them up. I'm going to do a read through some of these and then give a report when I get through them. 
But the one that I picked up, I, I was crazy, picked up the digital library because it looked like a great deal. And then I started looking into it and some of them were a little older and I thought, ooh, did I get the wrong thing? Um, but there's things like practical guide for designing for the web, information architecture, designing with data, uh, web app success, managing web projects. And then one that I thought was kind of humorous, hard-boiled web design, but that one turned out to be from 2010. So that frustrated me a little bit. So um, we'll have to see. But there are a bunch of others in that list, so you might want to take a look at it. Um, for example, in, in addition to the five simple steps books, uh, a list apart, um, they have something called the A Book Apart series. And so um, they basically have uh, a number of little books here. Uh, like, for example, Design is a Job, Responsive Web Design, HTML5 for Web Designers. Um, and let me see. So the, the ebooks are like nine bucks, they're cheap. So you might want to look at some of those. I never saw any of the book apart stuff. It looks like they're nice, small, targeted books. So that's kind of cool if you're getting into web design and web development. And there are a couple of others in here as well. Um, of course, they mentioned JavaScript, the good parts. Always a good book, right? That's, that's, that's an excellent one. Um, so anyway, so that's a list, codeweavers.net, and it's recommended reading 2013 for front-end developers. Cool. All right, moving on here. I have a quick review that came out of me going to uh, the uh, Andrew uh, and DevCon 2013 conference in San Francisco two weeks ago. So we were sitting around, you know, looking at the different conference sessions, uh, and someone kept mentioning in every one, "Hey, if you take a look at Jenny Motion, what's Jenny Motion?" So it turns out Jenny Motion um, is a project, uh, and it used to be something else. I it's it's some sort of Android um, emulator, and I won't remember the name of it right now. Of course, the search is not helping me one bit. But it, it used to be an Android uh, emulator VM that ran in VirtualBox. You would download the VM, and you would kick it off. That's what it is today too. But there's a setup for it. So the only requirement you have is yes, you'll have to need you'll you'll need your Android SDK install, of course, to deploy to it. But to run it, all you need is is uh, VirtualBox, and you sign up to Jenny Motion on the website and you get their free account, and you download a VM. Uh, once you download the VM, and you can pick from a number of different VMs, you know, you want Jelly Bean, you want Ice Cream Sandwich, do you want a tablet, do you want a mobile phone, do you want a, you know, the Google apps on it, that kind of thing. Um, and so you download these virtual machines, and they run as actual virtual box machines. And oh. anyone who has played around with Android for more than a couple of weeks knows that the standard ARM-based machines, or whatever they are, are so ridiculously slow and painful that you want to tear your eyes out. And so someone eventually looks at you and says, uh, use Haxum. And you go, what the hell is Haxum? Haxum is the Intel uh, Android VM. And so it actually runs and it grabs shared memory for all of its VM inst instances. You actually have to configure it up front. Uh, and it runs on the Intel platform as just like VMware does. So it actually is pretty fast. So most people who do any kind of serious Android development without their phone in front of them, uh, they use the Haxum. Uh, emulator. Well, it turns out these guys have one up on that as well because Jenny Motion has all these really cool features. So yes, it boots very, very quickly in seconds, even on a really slow machine. On my uh, little uh, MacBook Air 2011 edition, uh, it booted up a VM in less than eight seconds, which is really fast. Um, and right there, it was ready to go and test my application. Um, you know, it automatically, when you run it, it sets itself up as a device for debugging so you can deploy things to it and debug to it and all that kind of stuff. But what makes it really interesting are the features. Now, I will say before I get into this, 
Uh, I will warn you that there is a free and there's a premium. So there's a freemium deal here. Uh, we'll talk about the pricing so you know what it is. Um, I'm certainly not endorsing it. I'm just pointing it out in case you've never seen it. Um, but, for example, they will give you, for example, OpenGL Acceleration. Um, they'll let you do full screen display. They have all these little sensor icons on the right so you can play with battery. What happens if it goes to low battery condition? You can actually use your own phone as a gyroscope and a remote control so you can simulate what happens if I turn it sideways, what happens if I shake it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it will give you, you know, a light sensor, temperature, rotation vectors, things like that. And you can interact with it with little toolbar widgets along the side of the device. Very, very cool. Uh, it also runs on Linux, Windows, and Mac. So you can actually get it and use it on, on any of your uh, platforms. So it was really cool. I thought it was an awesome feature. It really did work very, very well, and everything booted very quickly. Now we talk about pricing. So it turns out that um, you can use it for free. Uh, if you're doing open source, uh, and then <laughs> here's the trick, is if you're an individual developer um, or you're in a company with less than three employees, which means two. Marketing, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you can buy the 99 uh, euros uh, license, um, and that's about $136. If, unfortunately, you have three or more people, uh, it's $299 per seat per year. So these are per year licenses. Now I'll say this. I mean, I, I know when we did flex development, you know, one of the things that Chariot's done in the past, I know when we were doing flex development, you just kind of pay the piper to get the flex builder just because it was the thing that got the development done most expediently and you got the graphical view of things. So I understand buying tools. I certainly would say don't don't sell yourself short and just puddle along without any good features because you want to be free all the way through your desktop. Um, but you know, it's up to you to determine whether this is worth it for you. I can say that everyone who looked at this at the show, we were all going, I, I want to go buy that. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, really, really nice. If you're doing a lot of Android development, if that's your job, you should be looking at Jenny motion and it used to be something else. Like I said, it was like, and something other via Andro VM. That's the name. See what happens when you turn 40 plus, um, <laughs> if you want the free version of it, and you want to? You don't mind going back a couple of versions? I think it's uh, Jelly Bean four one or something. Um, you can go to the androvm.org/blog, and you can download the pre Jenny Motion Andro VM. And so, if you want those same basic features, minus all the little widget buttons and stuff, but if you want the VM running in Intel, and it even has you know Google Apps and things like that, you can use that prior release. And people really liked it. And then he went to a purchase model. So even on that site it says, please note, Android VM has switched to Jenny Motion. Please sign up here to download new virtual machine images. But today I played around with it. I got a tablet version up and running, and it booted in like five seconds on my machine here, and I was thrilled. So, yeah, it's thirty-five bucks a month. I mean, if you it's not bad. if you want to just sit there and stare at your screen while you know, I, I'm a big proponent of buy tools that make sense. What's your time and, worth and almost, to you? Exactly, right? and and if you're a company like you're going to get these high priced developers and just have them sit there and watch something like compile or churn. Like that makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so definitely something to take a look at. I mean, all the, all the Android people, uh, they were all Androids. Um, <laughs> they were all little <laughs> tiny droids, Daleks running around. Um, all, all the people in the Android developer community, we were all kind of gushing over this thing, including a lot of the speakers and most of them by the end of the week had it running in their machines. They were doing all their demos from Jenny motion. So that should tell you something. All right, so let's move on then. Do you want to talk about Google's computers outwitting their humans? I got to hear this. 
Yeah, so this is, you know, pretty crazy and, you know, a long time coming. Or as somebody put on uh, one of the mailing lists that I read this, uh, Skynet arrives a few years later than expected. So, so, you know, Google's uh, now a lot of you're hearing probably a lot about deep learning, um, thinking machines, basically machine learning, but using uh, things like neural networks, which are just different techniques for, you know, I, I guess more computationally heavy, but, but different techniques for, for doing machine learning. And yeah, I got to use that voice. And so this is, but what was really kind of crazy is what this one Google uh, researcher found and he presented it at, um, I guess a conference at the machine learning conference in San Francisco, um, just this past Friday. And this was by Google software engineer who I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name correctly, but I'm just going to say, um, Quack um, Q-U-O-C. Um, he produ- so basically, this was what he what he was talking about. Their deep learning technology works when these neural networks, which are have been around for a long time, but I assume the reason that they're not more popular in use or only more recently is just the raw computing power necessary to um, you know to actually implement them. Because I mean, I learned about neural networks in school and stuff like that, and it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Yeah. But apparently, I didn't really understand it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the, the it works in layers. So this is, we're talking about image recognition. So the bottommost layer detects changes in colors in the image's pixels. And then a layer above that might use, be used to detect certain edges. And after that, they add successive layers that, that find different things. So they might do um, methods for finding faces or rocking chairs or computers. It's saying in this article, which is on the register, um, which is a UK uh, right. newspaper. And so, um, so, so they've organized this thing in layers. And But the thing that really stunned this researcher was that he found it could start to find things that people couldn't figure out how it knew what they were. So he was talking about paper shredders. Don't know why he was looking at images of paper shredders, but he said, basically, if you've seen one paper shredder, you've seen them all. It's very difficult for people to distinguish certain ones, but not so for this program. So what would actually happen, he said, was he spent a lot of time thinking about how he could engineer a program that could actually recognize that this boxy shaped thing is a shredder. He said it's actually really complicated because the difference, I guess, between a shredder and a trash can is not very much, you know, they're pretty similar looking. So it's pretty difficult to, he couldn't actually figure out how to do it. And then he talked to some of his other people and they couldn't really either identify it themselves or figure out how to write a program to do it. However, the computer program, this program was having a great success at doing it and he couldn't even figure out how to write the program that would actually make it work. And so he said what this, um, what this kind of crazy situation was, was that we have to rely on, this is a quote, we had to rely on data to engineer the features for us rather than engineer the features ourselves. And as, you know, quoting in this, this means that for some things, Google researchers can no longer explain exactly how the system has learned to spot certain objects because the programming appears to think independently from its creators and its complex cognitive processes are indecipherable, basically. So okay. it's not that it's not that you I guess you couldn't eventually unwind how it did it. It's just that it figured out things that people couldn't. So it made jumps that its own creators didn't exactly know how it did. Listen, I, now, I think it comes down to something though. I I, I, I want to go on a limb. Okay. What's that? I think it's love. Let me explain. <laughs> wait, wait, no, no, you think I'm crazy. Let's say you were let's say you were a shredder, right? <laughs> and you were hanging out with other shredders for a long time, and you got to know the shredders really well. And there was this trash can, right? And the trash can was like a poser, and it sat there, and it, you know, maybe it had little kind of 
little, little slot in it, maybe carve a little slot in itself and look like a shredder. But you can't fake it, right? You really can't fake being a shredder. I think that's what this is. I think that it's smart and it knows and it loves shredders, love other shredders. So it got into the mind of the shredder and it looked at the picture of the trash can. It's like, nah, I ain't no shredder. That, <laughs> that no? That no? could be it. That could be it. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's what it is, Joel. You, you, you don't believe me, but when we're all chained up to the wall and they're lasering our guts open so they can use them as food for their reactors, they'll tell us, it was love, and that'll be it. It's going to be like that movie Wally where the robots all meet each other. Well, you know, yeah, exactly. It could be because it's not like these people could figure out how it was working either. I want so, one of those chairs where I can fly around and watch TV too, you know. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I cut it off, but I couldn't help it, but interject true. that. No, so this is, this is it. Deep learning has just, you know, we've, we've totally jumped the shark and now these, these machine learning programs are coming up with things that we wouldn't actually know how to do ourselves. That is crazy. Yeah, I've, I've seen plenty of computer systems that nobody knew what it did either, and the only way to actually see what the output would be would have put something in the input. But that was never like actually designed. That was obviously just through negligence. And we all, <laughs> we all know Mr. Fal- uh, Dr. Falcon from uh, War Games. You know, can we play a game? You know, we all know that he figured out the Whopper figured out that it could just play a game of thermonuclear war. But that was a movie. Yes, it was just a movie. Yeah. So so Google's starting to outsmart themselves. Just oh my god. Sp- yeah. I'm going to yeah, go on the ground. This will be the day that we lost control. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the, the next one on my list is uh, really cool. Um, new secure filters NPM, a node module, yep. for simpler output sanitation from Go Instant. So I, I like these guys at Go Instant. They mm-hmm. have really cool uh, web APIs for um, you know real time or quasi real time adding quasi real time features to your system really easily. And um, but they came out with basically a JavaScript library that does uh, sanitize. Well, it does input validation, sanitizes output. Ooh. So this is really based on um, actually, you know, it's really based on the same kind of principles from a library which I absolutely love, the OWASP ESAPI project. So O W A S P. Yep. OWASP is kind of like the leaders. They have this OWASP top ten every year of the top ten security vulnerabilities that they see. You know, it's maintained by a security company, and it's good stuff. And ESAPI is their open-source Java-based product that you can use for input validation and output sanitizing. Lots of good stuff, lots of good security practices that many, many sites just seem to miss. Right. And so, um, you know, the Internet would be a safer place if everybody used ESAPI. But it's Java, and it's not always the easiest to incorporate. Um, sure, sure. So they've um you know basically it's not that this is a straight port of a sappy but it is a very similar kind of goal for this library in spirit and, of yeah yeah and they actually even reference that they you know that basically the same thing that that it's it's a philosophy similar to to a sappy mm-hmm. which is to have a white list of safe characters and escape everything else gotcha. and so um Bottom line is, you know, if you're using Node, or I assume this can be used in, it doesn't have to just be used in Node, it's an NPM module, but if you're using, you know, JavaScript on the server side, that, you know, you should definitely look at this, and it could help make your application more secure. Because these kind of things are not actually easy to write, because there's a lot of, like, edge cases and things. It's much better to get a library that's well-tested and to be able to rely on that than to try to do your own um, kind of stuff. So if I understand correctly, I mean, the, the thing that everyone's been focusing on mostly is input validation cross-site scripting attack uh thwarting that kind of thing but this is just as bad if you output things like your parameters for your queries or oh, your, yeah. your critical data they're t- basically having you scrub that in the output so that no one can get a hold of the log output and then attack based on is that the 
the point yeah, of this library? It is, and I think it does input and output from what I can understand. That's but very actually cool. it's saying for simpler outputs. Maybe it is basically just output. Yeah, I think the, they, they lay the case for what input validation is first, I think. Got it. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I just remember talking to some of the OWASP or the SAPI basically maintainers and things about the problems of doing it. You know, when you're talking about, you know, you, you think it sounds simple, well, we'll just, you know, escape everything. But um, you, know, you really have to be, it depends on your context. What you're doing, you know, depends on whether what you're trying to look at is JavaScript or HTML or what is it, you know, what's the character encoding. Like there's actually a lot of, there's a lot more to it than just, you know, search and replace. And so GoInstant is some sort of platform, right? And um, Right. Go and, but this is an open source donated tool. Correct. So Go Instance is a platform, a software as a service, you know, API that you can use to add cool features basically to your site that are that are around real time, like a real time blogging feature or, or I mean, um, chat feature or a bunch of different things. Um, where uh, that's that's what Go Instant does. But then they they just release this as an open source library that you can use. It does yeah. look, by the way, if you go to uh, Go Instant. So if you go to GitHub.com/slash Go Instant slash secure dash filters mm -hmm. um that and i believe that's what this is right uh, yep. secure filters module so that's the github project for it and it does say right there about input too it says collection of sanitization functions filters provide against cross-site scripting and other injection attacks so it could be you know input as well so oh, yeah and they even say you know html javascript that's CSS, so cool you yeah. know css so there's a lot of ways people can can mess with your program and oh, um, definitely yeah so that's why looking at having somebody else who's kind of thought of you know basically the full range of output encoding or input validation it's good because there's the, the, your odds of missing just one of those you know threat vectors or whatever you want to say yeah it's, it's fairly high and actually it um it integrates with uh, ejs templates as well yeah it looks like you need node because it says development dependencies node.js greater than 0 0.10 got it so it must be for their stack for the node you know uh APIs. That's cool, though. It's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Great. Let's see what else we got. This is good stuff this week. Um, hey, uh, here's another interesting one. So, and I just watched this earlier. Tracy Wilson Rossman flagged this one, and I was like, "Yeah, Tracy, go on." She's our director of sales and marketing. So, um, there was a guy who gave a presentation about this, but the Daily Mail, which is like a tabloid. Um, I hope I don't get this wrong. England. Sorry. Uh, a ta I'm pretty sure it is tabloid. But uh, a tabloid paper, they have a version of it called themailonline.com. It's dailymail.co.uk. And uh, they'll sense where you are. And so we have a U.S. home page. It has something like a 32,000 um, pixel homepage. It's huge. Um, if you scroll down, you just keep on scrolling. Now, so there was a talk given. Uh, let me see if I get the original link here. Um, <clears throat> I'll have to find the original talk. I'll post it in the show notes. But there's, there's a... Um, uh, in on a website called nearform.com, there is a node crunch, uh, uh, I guess, uh, show. And uh, this, this show had a person on it uh, who gave a discussion uh, about how Node.js has revolutionized the mail online. So there's a person named <coughs> Clifton Cunningham. He's a CTO of the mail online, and he has nothing to do with the actual content of the mail online. He just hosts the content. So he's, he's serving the, the, the engine that, that processes this. So 32K pixels long, um, and they do the whole thing in one go in Akamai, now, which is a big content syndication engine. Would you believe me if I told you that there's only four servers serving all this content? Wow. That's insane, right? So it didn't start that way. In fact, when he came on board, uh, and I'm not sure what year it was. I think it was a year or two ago. He came on board. They had a, uh, a you're going to be shocked. They had a big spring application 
uh, <laughs> with uh, you know uh, front end JSPs. Um, they were using EXTJS, like a very early version of EXTJS. Um, you know, they had uh, you know 155,000 lines of Java code, 30k in JSPs, uh, 50k lines of JavaScript, and a 15 year old Oracle database with no useful tests. Um, so at the time he was hired, they were busy rebuilding it and they were rebuilding it. They were gutting spring. Uh, they were rebuilding the whole thing in Java EE and they were using, uh, Oracle. They kept the Oracle database. <clears throat> they still wanted to separate web developers and backend developers like they did in the spring project. And they wanted to, uh, use XSLT to translate it to the output. They thought that was going to be fast. So needless to say, that wasn't going to work. Um, and so he decided they, they absolutely had to change because, um, you know, they were stuck in this mode where they were trying to make Java do something uh, that, you know, they felt that Java couldn't necessarily handle the way it was doing it. Uh, and so um, they ended up deciding you go with Node. Sounds like a familiar pattern after last week's discussion with uh, Brian O'Neill over uh, at, um, I can't remember his, his company name now. But uh, anyway, so the point being that they went through and completely rewrote everything, and they have a whole development process that is basically eliminating the bottlenecks between developers and customers. Oh. So they said simple is best. <clears throat> you know, you can work in these, they call them tables. It's kind of like there's a big backlog of work, and the backlog of work can be picked by any table. The table can have anywhere from two to six people on it, uh, and they let people move from table to table. They can be kicked out of a table if they drive someone crazy. They could be joined into another table, so they kind of all self-organize and self-plan uh, their work. Now, the team is responsible for everything from cradle to grave, so if they have a bug, then it's 3 in the morning, they fix that bug. So there's ownership of what they build. Uh, may not work for every development tool, but they ended up using uh, Node, and their Node stack is using Express, which is kind of a uh, MVC framework around Node. Uh, they're using templating with mustache, which is actually what they said was the most common templating language available to them. They they they're storing a ton of stuff, 1.2 million articles in Elasticsearch. Yeah, that's insane, right? So yeah. you can search anything that's ever been done there and get very very quick output. Also, they're using Redis as a giant cache, so which they makes things, sense. Yeah, absolutely. So that, so you know any top articles go into the cache, any shares, you know for share counts and such go in the cache. Um, and they're doing JavaScript functionally, uh, using things like underscore, you know, for, for processing your collections and things like that. Um, and then um, asynchronous calls and things like that. Uh, also, they're using Clojure. So their other language uh, besides JavaScript and Node is they have other applications running Clojure. And I think he mentioned the word bespoke. That doesn't sound right because I think bespoke was something else. But um, they are using some sort of framework uh, on top of... Um, on top of closure, I don't know what what it is for their web stuff. So, really interesting talk. You should watch it. It's only an eighteen minute, maybe yeah, eighteen minutes and sixteen seconds, and it's definitely worth watching because he basically went in there and said, you know, this is insanity. We can't keep doing what we've done before and expect performance to improve with a fifteen year old schema and you know all this extra legacy code we're trying to convert. How do we know we're going to get better performance by converting it to another Java framework? with the same database and then we're going to XSLT, which you and I both know that's not going to cut the, cut the mustard. Um, but you know, that was what they knew at the time. So, uh, he looked and said, let's do it differently. So very interesting talk. Uh, in fact, one of his statements here is killing Java with closure. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I said, mean, that was, that's really interesting because of their volume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he said, uh, he rebuilt, they rebuilt the one table, rebuilt the entire legacy Java front end, 
replacing the entire 155K lines of Java with about 4,000 lines of closure. A company with a large number of mustache templates shared by Node. So they were sharing the templating too across two languages. That is cool. So crazy. Really neat. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big success story for Node as a platform in production. Yeah, that's two of them now in a week that I've seen. So definitely something to pay attention to. I think that does it, right? I think we're good. I think so. I think that we've reached our legal limit of dev news for today. <laughs> it's almost in the state of Pennsylvania. That's right. You, you have to come with me, son. Um, all right. So that's it. So that is developer news episode number 69. Uh, if you're interested in more developer newses, uh, head on over to, uh, to emergingtech.cherrysolutions.com and go to our podcast uh, page. Uh, within two or three weeks, you'll be able to actually go to just chariotsolutions.com and click on the same menu. It's going to say podcast, screencast, and blogs, I believe. And uh, go to the same stuff. All the old links will still redirect to it, but it'll be a whole new site with all of our content in one place, which I cannot wait to get to because um, I am done having to edit three properties. I created my own mess, so now I'm cleaning it up. Are you using Node? No, no. Uh, yeah, no. Um, but anyway, so uh, definitely if you want to go there and subscribe, please do. You can also hit us on iTunes, search for Developer News. We also have a couple other properties out there. Um, we have the Chariot TechCast, which... Um, has a number of podcasts out there and interviews and uh, that's uh, Chariot TechCast we also have the Business of uh, Technology podcast Business of Development actually is what it's called and that's available through the same place and that's uh, Tracy Wilson Rossman is the host of that and uh, we just put up an episode of that today where she's interviewing someone from um, oh now I'm going to get this wrong her name is Anita Garamella Andrews RJ Metrics talking about uh, analytics so that's really good if you're a business person and you have tech people with you uh, to get kind of a couple of insights into the way business people interact with tech that's what her show is all about so that's it so okay so for Monday November 25th that is the Dev News I'm Ken Rimple I'm Joel Confina and make it a techie week I guess I don't know gotta get a better tagline 